Hi, I'm Brendan Creed. I play hockey for GB and England men. And this is Talk Hockey Radio. Welcome to a very special edition of Talk Hockey Radio in collaboration with the Hockey Museum. Today we bring you a 70th anniversary special of the Wembley Games that were played between 1951 and 1991. We hope you enjoyed the podcast which features some very special guests who played at some of these games. I'm joined today by Taff as normal, Kate, Anita, Christabel and Maggie. So my name is Kate Richardson-Walsh and I played for England and Great Britain from 1999 to 2016 and I was part of the history-making team that won gold in Rio and I have 375 international caps. Hello, my name's Anita White. I played for England between 1971 and 1976 and was privileged to captain the England team when we won the World Cup in 1975. Uh, I appeared at Wembley, uh, I think it's five times, and Maggie was in fact part of the team um, that played from 74 onwards, so we played together for several games. Hello, hi, my name is Maggie Suyov. I played for England and GB between 74 and 87. Played 11 times at Wembley, captained at the Royal Wembley in 81, and I have a total of 103 caps. Hi, I'm Christopher Russellvick, and I'm one of the co-authors of the Hockey Museum's The Magic of Wembley, a book that celebrates the history-making women's hockey games played at the Wembley Stadium. Welcome, ladies. Welcome. Yeah. Thanks for being here. <laughs> um, well, thanks for joining us today for this very special edition of Talk Hockey Radio. Um, I'm, I'm so in awe of all of you, really, to be honest with you. Um, I, don't know about, I don't know about Simon's feelings on anyone. Um, but hopefully we'll have a really good discussion of, um, of the uh, Wembley era um, and your experiences of playing um, there and also you know, maybe get a, a bit of a contrast from Kate well on uh, what it was like for you playing um, now as opposed to back then um, when they played at Wembley, really. Um, so... Let's go on with the first question, shall we? I'd like to go, you know, talk about the book a little bit uh, before go on to the uh, the actual, um, you know, playing era games and stuff. So, Christabel, or Chris, as you like to be called, um, tell us how you got involved in creating the book and and its uh, conception um, and publication. Well, I decided to volunteer uh, for the Hockey Museum, but at the first meeting I went to, they said, oh, we've got a project for you because um, Nan Williams has uh, researched women's hockey at Wembley and we'd like you to turn it into a book and we're giving you a deadline of the Women's World Hockey Cup and therefore you've got 18 months to put it together. Um, Nan had done all the research, so it was really a question of me sourcing photographs and perhaps um, sorting the layout and my idea was that it would be a book where people could in enjoy a trip down memory lane with all the memorabilia that we remember you know I, I went to uh, the hockey a lot um, my first trip was in 1965 when I was about nine and I went about 20 times so it's very much part of my childhood and you know it was the fun of the girls having a day out rather than the boys um, and a friend of mine um, came with me one time and she said I'm so pleased to be going to Wembley because my brother always goes to the uh, boys football international and now I get a chance to go 
for the girls. <laughs> Um, so it was uh, it was quite nice. So I was able to add a little bit to the book about my um, experiences of it, um, and it was a lot of fun to do. Really, I I um, got Nan to help me with various things, and um, there was um, initially I think the intent of having a more serious book, but I think my view was no, let's just celebrate it, enjoy it, and have the fun of remembering uh, what the day out at Wembley once a year was. Brilliant. Well, was there any like hidden gems that you basically found whilst you were either, you know, doing your own research or, you know, what Nan had um, put together? Well, I had a lot of fun going through the Hockey Museum's um, photographs to, to find uh, photographs for things that I had in my memory, like all the schoolgirls and uh, people wearing different rosettes, you know, the pop stars of the day, you know, it was anything to make money. So it wasn't all about England. It was about sort of what was going on socially at the time. Uh, probably the biggest bombshell for me was when I was interviewing my mother because I decided to write a book about my family history. And she told me that it was actually my grandfather that organised for the women to go to Wembley. And I couldn't believe it. And she said that he'd gone to the match in 1949 at the Oval. Yeah. And um, they had 10,000 and they still wasn't big enough and um, my grandfather uh, Sir Godfrey Russell Vicks said to the then president this is ridiculous the women should be playing at Wembley and um, the president uh, Helen Armfield said well we try but they won't have us and he said well that's ridiculous I shall ring Sir Arthur Elvin on Monday and tell him he's got to and that's what he did and that's why the women went in 1951 and I was amazed because that was kind of the first time I'd heard that he was the one that sort of enabled it to happen. So you you must have a lot of stories uh, to tell about, you know, your experiences or your mother's experiences, you know, getting involved in, and making it happen. Was, I mean, it obviously only, only took about a year from, from actually being mentioned at the Oval to... It, no, it was, it was two years because it was 1949. Oh, sorry. Apologies. And they, they, were, they were told that they had to guarantee a crowd of 20,000. So that was actually quite hard work. But luckily, um, Marjorie Pollard was running Hockey Field and she did a lot of um, advertising and they somebody had the wit to contact British Rail and get special trains to run into Wembley Central. And yeah. so the sort of drive was on to get all schools and, and clubs to agree to come. And a lot of people came from, um, you know, further afield. And, uh, you know, we have actually got some examples of um you know people coming from like up in cumbria and leaving the very early hours of the morning coming down enjoying the match and then they they would go to a show at the uh, wembley empire pool and then get the train back and arrive back very late at night so it was a full day out it's it's for, for me it's pretty mind-boggling to even get british rail involved uh, at that time do you know uh, it's it's pretty easier nowadays of social media and and other collaborations that you know British Rail or other um, you know train organisations will uh, will get involved in and they would know about it so they would put extra trains on but getting British Rail involved putting on extra trains or even you know special trains at that time was amazing amazing I thought another thing that was very interesting was things like having uh, published uh, song sheets by the Daily Express. Mm -hmm. um, and that idea of 
really getting the crowd whipped up um, is, is lovely. You know, instead of our current situation where we have hockey makers frantically trying to get Mexican waves going and, and so on, uh, the, the, a publication like the Daily Express of its weight and power would get behind this. It, it's incredible. Yeah, well, definitely. What, I mean, what lessons do you think could be learned from, from back then? Uh, put something like that in place now, possibly. I don't know, Chris. Yeah. One other thing, um, I don't think you can repeat, sorry, I don't think you can re repeat this. It was it was an absolute one-off at its time, of its time, and there wasn't any other women's sport that was doing anything like this. And women's sport as a whole simply didn't have the recognition that it has now. You know, there have been enormous strides in the, in the last um, 10 years, I would say. But this was amazing. Yeah. Uh, that You know, to think in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when women's sport was just not taken any account of, that they could get this fantastic, well, first of all, play at the national stadium. And we've right. heard the story of how that happened. But then all of the schools sending these school parties by coach, by train, to come to it every year. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that, that whole idea of playing in front of 68,000, which was the crowd um, when Maggie and I were playing, I, you know, it was it was surreal. It was it was so. I don't think you can quite repeat it. Um, and I'd like to think that the you know women's sport gets loads more recognition. And Kate, your team, since you won the gold medal at, in Rio, it's been fantastic. The attention that hockey's got, and people have seen it on TV. But I don't think you'll ever recapture the Wembley thing, which was just something very unique in its time. Because if you look at um, the 1951 footage, which is some of, and you see the school children, not only were the school children there, but they were in their school uniform. Yeah. Nearly every one, if we're thinking of the thousands of children, they all just met. And they, to, today that just wouldn't happen. But it had something special about it being, you know, from all over the country and all these school children in their, even their school caps or school hats, you know. So it was absolutely special in terms of just seeing the, the actual massive crowd as well. It was fantastic. And I agree with Anita, you, you won't be able to replicate that in, in the modern day, but it's it, in a way you wouldn't want to because that had its special moment in the years uh, during the period it was going on. Oh, well, yeah, uh, you're, probably, you're probably right. <laughs> well, you are right. I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, this brings us to, nicely onto, you know, um, obviously yourselves playing uh, Maggie and Anita. We'll come. Uh, we'll come to the, the selection part to start off with. Obviously, um, you know you played uh, before Wembley happened, and then obviously as Wembley happened and things like that. Um, what was it like to get the letter and also know that you were selected for England, and then knowing that you'll be playing at Wembley? I don't. I don't know. I. I mean, I don't know what that sort sort of feeling you would have had at the time. And how how was the selection process done? Were you, I don't know, um, in a development uh, stage, or did you go to trials and things like that? Well, I'll, I'll try and answer, and Maggie, you can you can yes, chip in. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was um, it was an interesting uh, kind of method at that time. Everybody at the beginning of the hockey season, everyone started from square one. So you went from your club to county trials. So that was the first step. Could you make it into county? Then the county teams played each other at a tournament that was over the new year. And that, and from that, they chose what was called a territorial team. There were five 
regions, North, South, East, Western Midlands. Then those in during January and February, the worst time of the year, those teams played against each other in front of a panel of England selectors. And at the end of that, they announced the England team. And you got and you got a letter saying you've been chosen to play such and such a position for England, because everyone was chosen by position. Eleven positions were named. Um, and these are the fixtures. And can you please report for the first game, such and such? We did have one uh, day or weekend of practice before we played together as a as a national team, and I think I think we see in Christabel's uh, excellent book how you know coaches were in, were only really introduced uh, during during the late sixties and seventies. And uh, that selection process compared to now in terms of a notification to players, I imagine it's um, maybe slightly quicker than a letter in the post, maybe. I know that I certainly, and I'm not sure if Nita remembers this, but I certainly remember sometimes going for the Sunday newspaper and looking for the team yes. spot. And you were very nervously um, with your family um, looking, and not necessarily on the back page, but you'd have to look further into the pages to find the team. So yes. sometimes the team wasn't chosen immediately after the territorials. They would take time. Um, so... I recall that before you get your actual letter that to have to go and read it in the Sunday newspaper and then you'd come waving back, you know, if you were, as Anita said, in the first 11. So for me, uh, in, in my position as a right winger, it was important to be the best winger I could be in the country. Um, so unlike today where you have obviously got a squad of, of players now. Um, but I also remember being in my final year at college when I was first selected for the senior team and uh, again at the time it was all your hopes and dreams had come true and it, it was something that I was able to then share with my family and friends and my college teammates um, who were all buzzing um, on the day so it, it, it's a fantastic feeling of course and uh, something you will always treasure at the very first moment um, and one thing to remember um, at college I was uh, one of my lecturers was Maureen Short uh, and she was um, a, a past England player. Um, and she, at the time, um, was um, obviously absolutely thrilled in terms of the selection and offered to uh, buy my first England tracksuit. Uh, so that is a, certainly a special memory that I do have. And, uh, you know, I'll always remember that. Oh, wow. So, you, so basically, you, you found out about being selected before you even got the letter? Yes. The, the, oh, wow. The, the, those are the occasions I, I remember. I don't think it happened safe. Uh, I think from 51 through, obviously, to 91, I'm sure there were many different processes. But certainly in, in my years, in, the, in, in terms of uh, the early part of uh, selection in the, 70, in the 70s, I recall definitely going for that Sunday newspaper and having to decide whether it was the Times, the Telegraph. And in fact, I have to say, I probably bought all the papers so that, you know, you could then read the cuttings uh, of the territorial tournament. So it led from that as well. Oh, brilliant. So the, so basically the letter was just a confirmation, really. Absolutely. So you already knew. Wow, that's amazing. I mean... And the one thing I, I, don't, I don't know whether Anita feels the same, that uh, when you were first selected... The one thing you did know that you had the opportunity to play at the iconic uh, Wembley Stadium, um, because 
in the early days, we had home countries matches. Uh, so you certainly knew you would have the three home countries matches. And then if, um, if, if it was possible, you would always get the opportunity to have foreign teams at Wembley. And I noticed, Chris, that the, there was at least 50% of the 41 matches, 50% were played at Wembley. Well, 20 were played at Wembley, weren't they? And, and the other one was obviously at White City. Um, so that that was exciting too to to know that it it was um that you would be playing holland germany australia new zealand america so right. so that was really very special and i always think back to my my brothers um my footballing brothers uh, they were all very jealous to to know that um you know you'd be off down not just watching at wembley but playing oh well <laughs> Can it, it was a definite policy that um, every other year they had a home country there. Oh, right. OK. Wow. Yeah, I mean, looking at the stats, uh, you know, obviously where Wales, Ireland and Scotland played more hockey at Wembley than uh, any other um, nations anyway. So, yeah, um, amazing. We, we, we need another home nations thing, don't we, really? <laughs> we're, we're advocates of this home nations, the talk hockey radio team and, our, and myself. Um, so... You know, you mentioned Maggie um, about your, um, you know, college um, teacher basically buying your first um, England tractor for you. Um, so this basically brings us nicely onto my next question: <laughs> is the fact that you had the the uniform change or the kit change from uh, fifty one to uh, ninety one or whatever vastly. Um, what was it like, you know, uh, for you um, having the kit? Obviously, you know, at, at that time you had to buy your own kit or or, or whatever. Uh, what was it like in your kit up and what, you know, talk us through that experience? Well, for me, um, it was very interesting, really, because I look back at, 90, at 51 and they wore penny fours. So the one thing that when we were selected, that it was good to know that we wouldn't be wearing penny fours when we played. But what we did know, we would be playing uh, with long sleeve white shirt so they still had that iconic long sleeve um, white shirt um, much thicker material though than the modern day and we would have again in, in my day it was the Len Smith's skirt uh, so the cardinal red skirt then of course you had your your socks um, in a funny way I do believe in the past that they also did provide you with red uh, knickers um, but I don't think that's something that um, we tended to dive into when we were going to get our kit and quite often um, it, you did hire or buy your kit some of the kit you were allowed to buy um, the, the interesting thing is we were measured up for the kit for the shirts the skirts um, the blazer but quite often when you did actually get it, it wasn't necessarily, um, it didn't necessarily always fit um, in a flattering way, let's say. Um, so I think the advancements in technology and clothing and the clothing now is, is, is obviously much better. So from a point of view of playing, um, it, it, it obviously was much thicker and heavier. Um, and, you know, we just got on with it. That's all we knew, really, if I had to say on that respect. And Maggie, do you remember with the, with the skirts, when we had to kneel down and have them measured yes. from the bottom of the hem to the way yes. you were kneeling on the ground to make sure that they were sufficiently decorous so you, you weren't showing too much bum? 
I know, quite different. The opposite. Yeah, to, it's to, the opposite. <laughs> yes. The shorter, the better, it seems. I yeah. would have liked that. Yeah, well, just you just look at the tennis players now too. Yeah. Um, so there was there was some concern, and this is why we had to have matching red cardinal knickers, so that if we did fall over and the television camera zoomed in, it, it would it would be uh, you know not too not too embarrassing. Um, on the shirt, I, I can remember when I started playing. I was in the old old sort of quarter style rugby shirt, um, and. Obviously, it's completely inflexible. Trying to push the ball, hit the ball was, was a nightmare. I was just looking through the photos, and it looks like you weren't able to roll your sleeves up. Were you required? No, oh, no. no, you had them buttoned at the uh, the cuff, and and you just had to. You tended to probably have a, a slightly bigger shirt um, in order to be able to do perform all the actions. So you're quite right um, about that. But we weren't aware of it being constricting. You know, as Maggie said, we just you just get on with it. You know, that was the uniform, and it was with great pride that you that you wore the the, the England cardinal red. The other thing we haven't mentioned is we all had white blazers then, yeah. and so when we walked out onto the pitch to be at the beginning of the game to be presented, we were all wearing white blazers with uh, three red roses on the, um, what do you call it, on the, on the breast pocket. Yeah. And it does, do you remember as well, I don't know whether you went by train, um, Anita, but when you got on the train, you didn't, uh, you had your bag and your hockey stick. In fact, I think, I don't think we had hockey stick bags then, and just carried one stick, took your bag, but we also... Um, ha- held um, our blazers, so we had them on hangers, and then put them, hung them up on the train. Um, distinctly remembering that, uh, so so it's so very different to today. Yeah. Oh well, uh, that's a uh, it's quite amazing, isn't it? Really. Um, so you're saying that the the, the the uniform, even though it was it was maybe a little bit oversized or whatever, wasn't restrictive. It was it okay to play in or? Absolutely, yes. It's uh, it was just something we did at county. Well, even at club level, at times um, at county, uh, I played for Lancashire and then went on to the north. And you had long sleeve shirts. Uh, only till later on, maybe in the late seventies, eighties, did did maybe you get a a quarter sleeve shirt. Okay, so I'm just going to um, share my screen uh, and then uh, show you a picture, and then we're going to talk about. Playing at Wembley for you, for you, for you both. Um, oh, do you see that? One? I do. Yeah. <laughs> so that's so the 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 pinafores you were talking about, uh, was those, uh, wasn't it? Uh, I, I believe that's uh, Ireland that uh, we were playing against. So Ireland were uh, were in that uniform, uh, and obviously you your iconic long sleeve um, tops uh, there with the. That's uh, uh, and I believe I'm not sure who that is actually, um, but I believe that England player actually scored the goal, even though they went down like that. <laughs> um, really, that's fantastic, isn't it? I mean, that's just amazing, amazing. Such a good picture. It is, isn't it? And I think the skirts in those days were divide. They they were like divided skirts. So, yeah. wow. And the pinafore, I mean, it's just, I think, if I remember rightly, it, it looks like the opposition had the pinafore things in there, doesn't it? So yeah, yeah. Tights on as well. Can you imagine? Yeah. Was well, so it the what, uh, reserve dignity? So, yeah, Simon, you said something? Uh, yeah, I was just asking. Uh, I, I, we noticed that England weren't wearing the tights. I just wondered, with you mentioning about the skirt being measured, 
was that for them sort of maintaining dignity that they had those on? Um, yeah, I think so. I think that was the reason for the skirt being measured. That you know it would be too risque if you'd had it too short, like a mini skirt, for example. It wasn't meant to be like that. You had to you had to look respectable and smart. Yeah. I think so, as the years went by, the shorter the skirt got, certainly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think is that I I noticed as well from uh, from the nineteen fifty one uh, images to to let's say even the nineteen ninety one images, the skirts did actually get mm. shorter, uh, but they're even shorter now. I think, like you were saying, Kate. <laughs> Well, one of the skirts that turned up as a prototype was practically see-through, and I said, "I'm not wearing that." <laughs> <laughs> I used to, I used to wear Lensmith skirts. I wore Lensmith skirts. I think um, definitely at County, and I think I remember getting it was it was that it was the really like proud thing to have a Lensmith skirt. It was the history of of the game. I remember Mum like really making sure I understood this was an important skirt I was getting. So I, I do remember the how important that you know those brands were and how they supported hockey and what they did for hockey absolutely i actually did a bit of research on len smith um, and try to find out whether they were still going uh, and up, i think up until recently they were um still a, a, a you know a shopping near twickenham or something like that um but now they've changed um ownership or whatever but i mean it's amazing that they, they were back you know from 1951 to even of, of, of the recent, um, however many years it was. So when you do call that number that they've got, it still says Len Smith on it. Uh, but unfortunately, the actual you know, itself isn't Len Smith anymore. Um, but this again brings us nicely onto um, the playing at Wembley uh, section of our <coughs> podcast. You were obviously the very first ever women's sport let alone hockey, women's sport to actually play at Wembley. And looking back on it now, that's 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 an amazing accomplishment. I mean, I, I think even now, hockey is quite innovative and, you know, forward-thinking. But back then, playing at Wembley as a women's sport must have been amazing for you guys. And maybe we can reflect on that with the similarities of, of, of you playing, at, um, Kate. But talk through... Um, you know, your experience of, of, of actually playing at Wembley and and what it was like for you, that anyone can start. Maggie, um, well, for, for me, obviously, the knowledge of the tradition and history behind Wembley was huge. So, um, you know, for me, I went to Wembley as a, as a spectator. Uh, so I spent many years, you know, from, from a young age going with my school, Barnsley, to, to Wembley. So, of course year after year going, you always had a dream to play for Wembley. And certainly one of mine was, was that very thing. And when you saw it, um, you, you, you in a way took your breath away to some extent. And the massive noise was just unbelievable. Um, my first Wembley was against Holland uh, in 74. Um, despite losing the game, I absolutely thought it was unbelievable um, from the moment um, you sort of uh, maybe we we're going down Wembley Way seeing the Twin Towers seeing the sort of actual 
scale of the, the whole stadium, that that is something that will always remain with me. And, you know, as I earlier said, that you, you, you had the opportunity only to play home countries matches during the period we played. So, you know, you, you got three or four internationals a year and maybe every four years you got a tournament. And um, so... so to have the opportunity on my my occasion, there were fifty eight thousand there. So the things I remember is very briefly we arrived um, outside the uh, the door of the changing rooms. We went in, put our kit in. We walked up the tunnel to an empty stadium. Um, had a look at the pitch, came back down the tunnel, um, uh, went to have lunch. Then obviously. Um, at lunch, we could go onto the balcony and look down Wembley Way and see the mass of uh, spectators coming. So all those things are a, a fabulous experience. And then the actual going up the tunnel and to go into the stadium when it was full to capacity um, was just unbelievable. Um, and, and those are the things. So what I remember is it has a special, special um, uh, time and i think in 2018 was very special too but it was in a different way you know at the yeah. queen elizabeth stadium it 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 was full to capacity but it was uh, it was like um, a cauldron an arena um there and and i think for me it, it, it's wembley's unique but so is the stadium in london uh, yeah. for very different reasons and you know, there's nothing better in in the time we played um, to to go. It was like a day out, and a day out that everyone remembered. So it was the, the, the annual day out, and it was obviously very sad when in '91 we we had to finish uh, playing there. But times move on, and I think it's something we'll we won't be able to replicate again. But we wouldn't want to. So um, you know, for for, for schoolgirls certainly watching the game, um, I'm sure like me they had many dreams to play for England. And Kate, I'm, I would imagine you you certainly had that that as well you know in terms of your, your career I mean I came to watch um some Wembley games so I remember my mum was a PE teacher at Marple Hall and she was taking a coach load of, of girls to watch so it must have been I don't know it must have been mid 80s mid to late 80s or something like that and that's all I remember the noise and and just being you know again I was only young but you know understanding that this was an iconic sporting place in the world never mind in our country and to be there and to see hockey women's you know women's team playing and just the noise that's all I can remember is the noise and the flag and singing and there's just so much joy um you know but I didn't even dare to I hadn't even played started playing hockey then so I hadn't even dared to dream but just to just to be have experienced that and seen that I think was really special I'm literally in awe of of you ladies I just think it is it is iconic to to have played in front of that many people at Wembley is just the most astonishing thing I want to ask you like a million questions that I want to know what you ate for lunch I want to know what time what time you arrived did you how you know the nerves built up and all of that yeah it's amazing well yeah basically just yeah talk us through you know Kind of, it's different now for you, uh, Kate. Or it was different now for you, uh, uh, you know, with the nutrition and all that stuff. So, what did you actually have for lunch or dinner or whatever pre-game or uh, and 
You won't, you won't believe it. You won't believe this. Um, and I don't know if it was every time, but certainly one time it was roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, can you can you imagine going out to play an international match on that? But, you know, <laughs> that, that was considered, that was probably a very special lunch that Wembley Stadium put on. And we, we had it upstairs in the banqueting room where we went for tea after the game with all the, all the VIPs and other people. Yeah. But um, the teams the teams had lunch together, actually, up there. And it probably was about a couple of hours before we played, rather than you know, getting everything absolutely right as yeah. to when you would eat food and when you would digest. And, so. <laughs> and, then, as, and then, as Maggie says, it was really exciting standing up on the balcony between the two twin towers, looking down and seeing all these coach loads of school girls arriving, and you begin to get really, really nervous. <laughs> um, there was a whole ritual around the, the we were in these big changing rooms you know which were obviously the ones that were used by all the footballers so there was an enormous communal bath <laughs> in there and, be, and before the game the tradition was we, we'd often get telegrams and bouquets of flowers from our supporters so I think you've got a picture in your book Chris of uh, the two uh, security guys from Wembley delivering the flowers to the, to the changing room Yes, uh, Katie, Katie found that. And yeah. She even knew the names of the security really? guards. So it was nice we were able to put that in. Yeah. And then you mentioned the community singing. We could hear that in, in the changing room. So, so because we often joined in with it just because it was a way of getting rid of some of the nerves. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm sure Maggie had the same experience, but uh, you waited in the tunnel in the dark with the other team. Mm. You could hear this this sound outside but as you walked out it was like walking into a wall of 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 sound and, and the whole the whole of the game the the um the crowd just kept up this noise there was no let up you couldn't hear the whistle well you couldn't hear yourself uh, you, no and you couldn't communicate with the other members of your team you know we were used to playing in front of a few hundred yeah. So suddenly, you know, you're, you're in this, this wall of sound. You can't communicate. You can't hear the whistle. The grass was good for football, but it was pretty awful for hockey. It was far too long and far too boggy. So it was difficult to play a good game of hockey, to play well there. Um, but it was just a fantastic occasion. How did you suppress the nerves? Because obviously nowadays, um, I remember, the, I think, a talk through that Kate and uh, Sam Quick and a few others did. They were talking about the nerves in the tunnel. And everyone's got their own individual plan as to how they're going to prepare for the game. And they go back a long time as to the preparation period. So they've got lots of support in how to manage the nerves. I can't imagine there was perhaps quite the same infrastructure uh, back then. So how did you guys cope with, with that anticipation? And it is something when you go out and see the stadium empty, you go away, you get dressed, you get ready, you go back out and it's rammed full. Yeah, well, we didn't have any, you know, sports psychologists were not known then. And I don't think, I mean, we just, you know, we were a team. We helped each other. And when uh, new players came into the team, the more experienced players would support them. And, you know, we were all in it together and it was, you, you just got on with it. I think so. And I, and I do remember, as Anita mentioned, that when you lined up in the tunnel, the tunnel was quite long. And then when you came out, it was even longer to actually um, go towards the Royal Box to line up. So you had plenty of time, in a way, to think about the game ahead. Um, but it, 
to some extent, it was good because you could take it all in. And I think the crowd itself helped you, even though we couldn't hear one another, we couldn't hear the whistle. We, we just got on with it and enjoyed the experience. So um, there's many, many things, though, that many memories in that respect. Um, and, and quite rightly, the need to mention about the grass from above. It looked beautiful, but it, a lot of it had green sawdust and far too long, not quite um, the kind of pitch to play uh, top-class hockey on, <laughs> but we managed. I, I don't know what Anita feels like, but as a right winger and you were a left winger, um, we were close to the sideline. And in those days, you were not allowed to interchange in the same way as you, you can now. And you had to sort of hug the sideline and, and you had minimal... Um, you had to ensure you took care and attention to, you know, trap the ball so that it wasn't just flipping off the sideline. So those are the kind of things I also remember. Uh, so when you got your first touch right and then you were able to sort of get on and control that, got rid of your nerves to some extent. Maggie, I don't know if it happened to you. I mean, it was great when you got a good pass and you ran onto it and you're running down the wing and the whole of the Wembley crowd was just getting lifting you because they were making so much noise and they screamed louder and louder the nearer the goal you got. Absolutely. But I know at least on one occasion and maybe more, I missed the ball when it was passed out to me and the whole crowd groaned. I know, yes. <laughs> That's what I'm meaning. But you it, was sure the you worst, it was the worst feeling, I can tell you. Yes. Just, yes. just to hear that. Yeah, definitely. Oh, oh wow. Um, <laughs> I, you know what? I can just, you're just talking about this and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually, you know, being taken back to that, that period. Obviously, I was never there or whatever. But you know, the way you're describing it, I'm thinking, well, I can imagine that. I can actually imagine that, you know. Um, that, so that's, that's, I don't know. Like, like Kate said before, we're in awe of you. I am anyway. Uh, and, you know, you're just like living legends, aren't you? Um, so, you, you know, you talked about the nerves going through the tunnel. It, it, it was a little bit different for you, Kate, um, especially at Lee Valley. Um, the tunnel isn't that long <laughs> and the pitch isn't that far away, to be honest with you. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a shorter distance and, um, and your experience at, uh, at the World Cup in uh, 2018 um, must have been quite similar, although yeah. probably not to that extent. But... No, I mean, watching the World Cup in 2018... Um... It was, it, there was, there were times where I was like, oh, I wish I was still playing. But it, it was, yeah. because as Maggie said, it is, it's kind of just, on, it feels like you're on top of the pitch because when the stadium was formed, it was all, it's all packed around. Yeah. It, is, it is a really nice atmosphere. I suppose probably, I mean, for, honestly, for me, in terms of relating in any way to, to what Anita and Maggie are saying, I can only think of, of opening ceremonies. For, for for Commonwealth Games or Olympic Games, that's the only thing I think that would at all be alike being in the dark tunnel and walking a long way out into light and noise. Yeah. And that is the, and you know, that's one of my most special memories. So, but then to go be able to go and play the sport that you love and that you're amazing at and for your country in front of that crowd, you know, I can't, I can't even begin to imagine really what that, what that was like. Um, London 2012 was obviously special. We had we had really good crowds for every game, regardless of whether Great Britain were playing or not. Um, but again, I think I mean Maggie probably knows better than me, but I think it was around fifteen thousand the capacity of there. So you know, you're talking 
right. tiny amount really compared to you know what what these women have played in front of at Wembley so um I mean then that noise was loud and electric yeah. and hard that was hard to hear one another and we had to really really talk about that and but yeah you know to 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 have that multiplied by whatever is is just yeah it's what you see when I switch on you know men's football and I see it every week and I when not in normal times you think wow I would have loved to have played in front of that many people and, and people you know that I played with you know I played with Maggie that I played with people that got to experience that and how special is that. Wow. I mean, you, you, you know, you, you've all talked about, um, you know, you couldn't hear the whistle and because of the crowd and things. It was probably more, even more difficult back then because didn't the umpires actually run the sideline and not yeah. come on the pitch? It, it's well, a lot these days <laughs> to hear the whistle. But, sorry, well, I think it, that uh, certainly um, the, to, to, uh, from what I can gather in reading the, the Wembley book, um, they tried many things out, I believe, um, in order to solve the problem of hearing the whistle. Um, they tried a policeman's whistle, I believe, amplifier on the umpire's jacket, siren whistles, a flag. So, and then obviously decided upon a klaxon was given a go. Um, and certainly I would say that interrupted the flow of the game um, in terms of what, what you would want to see, because quite often I, I believe what happened is there were two operators uh, below the royal box and each were assigned an umpire and then the moment the signal came from the the, the, the the umpire on the pitch would whistle and signal and then the operator had to then press the klaxon yeah. so that was the procedure of it so you can imagine um that that would go but you'd still be running down the pitch with the ball or oh, you'd yeah. be passing the yeah. ball and then the ball would have to they have to stop play and bring it back. So often the, the, the play was um, very much uh, interrupted. I, th I believe Fowles scored a goal on one occasion because the operator got excited with the klaxon and there's all sorts of things. So I think there's some funny moments, I'm sure. Um, and occasionally in the game, the ball would go in the goal um, and the spectators thought it was a goal and then the ball was outside the circle. So there were many, many amusing times. But but the actual, um, the, the, the umpire's whistle and the klaxon, that would all contributed to to a, a different type of, of uh, game. Yeah, wow. Um, and there was, there was also the fact that they didn't have an electronic scoreboard. They, um, because the, the electronic scoreboard they had was for the greyhound racing, they had to put up a sort of manual um, scoreboard and it meant that they had two men up on the balcony that uh, when a goal was scored, had to walk along the gantry to change the score. And I do remember on, on one occasion, you know, they got halfway along before they realised, no, it wasn't a goal. So they had to walk back and sit down again. <laughs> yeah, it was very amusing. There's a lot of amusing things, I would have to say. <laughs> question about, um, so something Maggie said, uh, Kate, so Kate was at these matches and saw the games um, and Tess, uh, Tess Howard has said that going to the 2018 World Cup was like the trigger point in her head when she went, oh, I'd quite like to do this. Um, did it occur to you when you were doing this that you were having that inspirational impact on people and making people want to dare to dream to do these sorts of things? Well, it's, it's an interesting question that I, for me, I definitely, as a schoolgirl going watching, I would look at different players on the pitch. Um, I grew up as 
a, a sporting girl, but played football with my brothers and played cricket um, and uh, eventually had aspirations to, to play hockey and then play, uh, play for England, play at Wembley, captain. So I had all those aspirations. So uh, as, a, as a player, then you hope that you, you would show um, many things on the pitch, you know, in terms of, of um, how you inspire the next generation. And one would hope not just from the playing, but from other parts on and off the pitch, you would do that. So I hope that I contributed to that um, for, for the, the, the players of today and, and the future players. Yeah, just to add to that, I don't think we ever thought of it. Well, I certainly didn't think about being an inspiration or a role model, but you did feel a huge responsibility that you were playing for your country and therefore you wanted to give a good account of yourself and a good account of England hockey. So there was a tremendous, if you like, pride and responsibility. But I don't think we were as aware then of that whole thing of inspiring youngsters and getting them into the game. Although indeed a lot of us were come from a physical education background and were PE teachers. Yes. So maybe that was part and parcel of our philosophy. But there weren't the sort of notion of idols or stars or anything like that in the in the same way. Val Robinson was the nearest to a star yes. because she won uh, superstars several times. So she she was recognized, you know, outside hockey for the outstanding athlete she was. Yes. I don't know if Maggie agrees, but generally it was it was much more low key. Then. Yeah, definitely. There's no question about that. Um, uh, and uh, uh, certainly from from having idols, and you, you probably did look back. Uh, I, I tended to have players within my own county and territory that you were who you were playing with, and that is what was maybe inspiring you then to to, to continue to then uh, play for your country, more so than looking at the, the internationals themselves. Um, you, you mentioned, uh, Maggie, about Captain Nassad and not your aspirations while you were watching. Actually, obviously, play for England um, and also Captain Nassad. So you, you actually, you know, accomplished that. Uh, well, as uh, as you did, Anita. So talk us through like the selection process um, and how you got selected to be captain. Because again, it's a really really different um, nowadays to what it was like back then, even you know in, in the fifties or whatever. Um, so how how did you get selected to be a captain, and what was it like going out? And and I think both of you played before played at Wembley before you were captains, and then you became captains, and then obviously um, you know led the team out. So just talk us through that because uh, that must have been a, a, a different experience for you to be them, not just being, I say, just being a player. You weren't just players, but <laughs> being a player and then being the captain, leading the team out. Uh, well, for me, I look back at school. I captained at school. Um, then you played junior hockey, uh, junior county and junior territorial hockey. You moved on to senior, but I mentioned I got chosen when I was at college so I captained the college team then you played for uh, senior county so uh, aspired to captain the county same with the North Territory so came through many stages of being a captain and being a leader in that way so of course as you're progressing through there then once you had this dream to play for England you would then want even more and and for me I I definitely did um one day want to captain England and you know uh, 
achieved that, that very dream. So for me, it was a great pride, great pleasure, great joy. Uh, anything, you know, that you could do to, to lead your country is just exciting. And it's even more exciting when you have the possibility to do it at, at Wembley, to lead the team out at Wembley. And for me, later on, we talk about the the Royal Wembley, for me to lead out the team and also present the team to the captain was just beyond my wildest dreams, really. Yeah, I don't know, Maggie, how it was, um, how, how the selection worked when you became captain. When I became captain, um, it was actually I was actually named as captain at the time that the team was announced. And so it was the selectors that made the decision, right. not the players. Right. And I think, it, I think that it would have been better in a way if it had been a player's decision rather than the selectors but you know that was the way it was you weren't going to turn it down no absolutely. Um, <laughs> so uh again i think perhaps what was very different in those days is there was minimal coaching so the captain was very much involved in the tactics and indeed we were consulted also on the selection of the team there were, and there were a lot of responsibilities that went with it over and beyond the field of play. Um, in those early days, we had formal dinners after the games and you had to make a speech, an after-dinner speech. I mean, can you imagine having been through the whole excitement of playing a game at Wembley, having to stand up and make a speech at the dinner? It was really, really tough. Uh, but also the captain was automatically on the executive of the All England Women's Hockey Association, so I attended monthly meetings and I was very much um, the, the player's voice and representative uh, at those meetings. So I think that was quite forward looking, actually, of, yes, uh, of the, the association, because it's only recently, I think, that players have really been involved in some of that decision making. But uh, they, were, they were doing it then. Uh, and, and the other liaison you had, obviously, was with the manager, so if there was a coach and a manager, you'd, you'd, you'd work closely with them about arrangements that, that were in place for the team. And then what we've talked about, about the, you know, trying to make sure Maggie came in actually as a, still as a college student on the right wing. When I, I think when I was captain Maggie, I, I, did, yeah. I did my best to make you feel welcome and how you did very well indeed <laughs> so so you know we took the that, that was also part of your responsibility to be aware of the different players in the teams and what their needs were and if they had particular issues you try and address those and there would be times when the players were all very annoyed with the selectors or the coach and they were you know were very critical and so you had to kind of handle that uh, as captain and I can see Kate nodding there so I expect there's quite a lot that's the same <laughs> yeah I mean really similar but I, I was voted in as captain in um, 2003 by the players so as you say really different um, but similar probably to both of you in that was captain of the school team and then um, county and territory and through the juniors so um I don't know. I don't think I ever really thought I want to be captain, but I know when it when it when it came, it it was one of the most you know proudest moments to be captain of your country. And for me, to know the legacy of that position, to know that the women that have gone before me, that I'm joining that list of incredible women. I think that that felt very special to me. I took that very seriously, my whole captaincy. And as exactly as Anita and Maggie have said, you know you whether you're a captain or you're, you're playing, you, you wear that shirt with pride and you are representing your country. And 
hockey and the team and the players that haven't been selected. So there is there is that sense of pride anyway, just wrapped up in in being presented with that shirt and being honoured to wear it. But I think walking the team out for any game, I think, is very special. Absolutely. I think the difference also in in the um, past because we didn't get together very often. Um, maybe sometimes it was. You got together on a Thursday evening, you had a two-hour practice on the Friday, and then you played an international hockey match. So when the team was first selected, I think the players wouldn't have necessarily known, you know, who to vote for in that way. So, yeah. so possibly um, that it, it's something that grew, um, uh, and maybe they took um, knowledge from the different um, territories as to what roles they had and played within their own territories. So I think it, it was very different to now because I think there's mm. much more time now the players are together. They can bond with each other. They can make decisions and, and, and therefore a voting system sometimes is, is how it moves towards, really. Cool. And did you, when you were coach, sorry, when you were coach, did you pick the captain? I can't remember. In, in the early part, and then um, we moved eventually, yes. So, so through my time, 95 to 99, yeah, um, yeah, the captain. And then I think it moved uh, maybe after the Olympics um, when it leaded yeah. on 2000 onwards is when then they started to do the voting. Yeah. And, and it's, it's all relevant, isn't it? It became yeah. professional in terms of the players and much more professional in terms of the coach, the assistant coaches, managers, much more support to the team mm. as well. So you had a, a much bigger support team um, to, yeah. to the individuals. Well, um, Maggie, you mentioned the, the Royal Game. Um, so I've got a, a bit of a... Oh, you've uh, got another caption I've here. Got, I've got another picture for you to look at. Oh, that's oh, such a good picture. Look, you see, I can't take my eyes off her. Can you imagine how you feel when you are thinking what, what, I was, what, what I was going to say to her when I presented with the bouquet? I'm just, it's an amazing picture, actually, I'd have to that's, say. That's a lovely picture and, and very, quite sharp as well, isn't it? I mean, you can see, obviously, the players, yourself and the Queen and and, and found behind, behind you as well. Um, in fact, that moment, um, the Queen had been at the other side with the Welsh team and then she came across. And the one thing I, I don't know whether it comes through in that photograph, that I had a line of, um, a, well, we had the umpire and then the line of, of the team. Yeah. And I had to say to myself, whatever you do, do not forget anyone's name as you go along that line. I'll tell you now, I, I, it always sticks in my mind this. And as you can say, you've got to, I have to try and think now, stop looking at the Queen, concentrate on who you're introducing. I, honestly, it was and the, the relief when I got to the end. Then when I got to the end, of course, Vicky Dixon was there with the bouquet of flowers to give to me to present to the Queen. And I'm thinking it was just such a relief. And then uh, we did have a conversation and I recall it distinctly. It was about the turf and I'm thinking, yes, the grass is green or um, yes, it is long. I, I have no idea quite what I said, but we did talk about the actual hallowed turf itself because um, everybody does say to this day, what did you talk about? I said, well, I said, that, that's, that's what we did talk about, you know, how long the grass was, how green it was and how it But no, it was a very special moment. <laughs> Um, Chris, I, I forgot, sorry, I was going to say, I've, I've, I've done exactly what Maggie said happened to me 
in South Africa. I was going down the players, introducing them. I think it was a South African dignitary. I can't remember. And I got halfway down and I had my brain froze. And all I could think about was this player's nickname. And I was like, oh no, I'm just going to have to go with it. And I just had to, just had to then just carry on in that vein. It was just awful. Because you, you, you are, you know, this is a quite a special moment. I'm like a queen, that's like yeah, another exactly. level. <laughs> You've done quite a few times though, haven't you, with dignitaries, so, have you, Kate? Well, she's well used to it now. Yeah, I'm all right now. Yeah. As you got more experienced. <laughs> um, I, I've been a question actually. Was it difficult? not to be, as a player, totally annoyed. I mean, like, in my time, I remember when Edwin van der Sar would rock up to watch um, at, at the uh, Euro hockey and, and at Bowdoin, and yeah, obviously the players were kind of in awe of him, but uh, with no disrespect intended to Edwin, he's not quite on the same level as the Queen. Um, <laughs> how do you guys deal with that? You know, the nerves and, and thinking, I'm, I'm going to meet the Queen. <laughs> That's just a ridiculous sentence to say out loud. Um, well, I suppose... You have to just hold your emotions and um, in a way, the most important thing was to make sure you didn't let the day go by too quickly. And what was quite good about the day the Queen um, came is that we went out quite early to line up in front of the Royal Box. And although you could think, well, you'll be even more nervous, it gave us time um, to think about what was going to happen. And the Queen came in in her Royal uh, Range Rover um, and took quite a bit of time to come around the stadium to actually then um, come in front of the Royal Box and get out of the... the um, with the two presidents, uh, apparently that wasn't supposed to be, but it happened, didn't it, Chris? I believe. Um, and she um, obviously, it, it's those moments where you just have to compose yourself and do your job, I suppose. <laughs> the funny thing about uh, the Queen appearing at Wembley was that they had invited her every year for years, and there was a um, an executive meeting, and my mother said. I haven't had the usual refusal from the Queen. I'm a bit worried she's going to accept. And everybody laughed. <laughs> and, then, and then she did indeed accept. And that actually brought in a whole raft of other things that needed to happen. For instance, she couldn't stay for tea after the match. So then they had to organise a, a lunch before the game. And uh, they had to draw up menus. Um, Wembley were not amused because they had to repaint the banqueting hall. So, you know, it was a big deal for everybody. <laughs> Oh, wow. and, and yes, when the Queen was going round in the Range Rover, she basically said, I'm not going on my own. So my mother and the, the Welsh president had to go in with her and go round. I mean, experience of a lifetime. Yeah, uh, I read that in the book as well. Uh, as, uh, you know, like, like you were saying, Chris, um, basically it wasn't it, it wasn't planned that they would actually go in the Range Rover with the Queen, but the Queen insisted. Mm -hmm. Like you said, because she didn't want to actually drive around on her own, <laughs> uh, which might, must have been amazing for your uh, for your mum, though. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if you if she ever mentioned or you know talked about what she might have talked about while she was in in the Range Rover. No, I think I think they were so stunned that they they kind of and you couldn't hear yourself thinking anyway because of all the noise. Such that you know, I think my mother sort of said something along the lines of, "Well, how about that then? <laughs> you know, who was expecting that?" <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> and, and the, yeah, so the hockey museum has um, got uh, the video 
of that um, because my boss at the time um, kindly agreed to um, record it on television. And the thing is, they weren't supposed to be covering that on television, but the racing got cancelled that day because it was so wet. So they decided to go over to Wembley and show the Queen going around the, the, the stadium. So that was sort of an unexpected bonus. And so I was very lucky that, uh, as I say, my boss at the time was recording it for me or we wouldn't have had that because everybody else who'd set their video recorders back in the day, um, you know, the timings were all wrong because they started half an hour earlier than they planned to. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I, you know, I, I can't I can't imagine. I mean, I was at the... Um, um, uh, Games Village in Manchester in um, in 2002 when they had the Commonwealth Games there and obviously the Queen visited there uh, and she actually watched some of the hockey I think uh, or 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 some of the players I don't know I can't remember it's that far away uh, far back um, and I remember the 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 sort of like uh, motorcade going past the village through through the uh, through the village now stood on the sideline you know in awe of like the Queen just going past. Whilst we were just doing our job, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, so just just doing that and and looking and seeing the Queen there was I was in awe. But with you guys meeting her, you it must have been it, amazingly more <laughs> so like nervous and it, it, awesome sort of thing. Yeah, I think one thing that uh, which was different because she came round in the in the, the Range Rover is the the moment she entered the stadium. Although we talk about the noise and the crescendo, it doubled in noise. Wow. It was just phenomenal, and I I, I recall that distinctly. Um, and you know, all the way round, it was just constant in terms of of the the the, the spectators. Yeah. Uh, of course, most of them schoolgirls, but um, you know that was uh, fantastic in itself. And I believe them. Um, I don't know quite on this story because you might know that she is quite a stickler for time. And I think the moment she left lunch and taken around the stadium, I think they'd kind of mistimed it a little bit because it was very crowded and couldn't get the car there quickly enough. So I think she was slightly behind the time that, in terms of the lineup. Presentation and the start. No, no, it was when she was arriving for oh, them. right. And apparently the Queen won't have the traffic held for her. Okay. So they thought they'd left enough time and they hadn't. And she ended up arriving late. I don't think she was that late, but okay. she, she, she was late and she was a bit on edge simply because they were late and she doesn't right. like being late. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and my mother said it wasn't until she'd uh, introduced, I think, Miss Mitchell and said something about. Well, she's done um, 30 years and uh, Miss Mitchell said 40 and the Queen laughed and, um, you know, that kind of broke the ice a bit. But yeah. up until then, she was kind of a bit uptight that she'd arrived late and that it might throw everything out. Yeah. Um, and my mother said she was really surprised. She never thought the Queen would be quite so nervous. Oh, oh, that, was my, that was my question. Can you imagine the Queen being on edge and nervous about, you know, meeting... The, the team or whatever or even being a slightly late for for meeting the team she must have thought oh she's holding them up or something like that i don't i don't know she seemed like a lovely woman anyway but you know um but yeah that that's that's mind-boggling thinking that the queen was on edge because yeah. she was running a bit late for, for meeting you guys but i think i think one of my favorite memories of, of that and i don't know whether maggie will agree was the thrill of singing god save the queen being able to look at the queen that was a really special moment 
and everybody yeah. turned to look at the Queen. That's what was yeah. so extraordinary. But also, Chris, as well, was it not that when the match finished and the Queen left the seat, the crowd sang it again? Um, and it was a, a special moment where, so it was actually sung twice uh, on that occasion. And it was just, they all just started singing again uh, at the end of the match as she was leaving and departing the stadium. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay, so I've got another image for you, ladies. Um, oh, another one. Another one. Um, just to sort of, you know, jog your memory a little bit kind of thing. We were talking about the crowd, so here it is. Wow. Look at that. It's only a small section of the crowd and that. And I'm not sure whether this is the um, the um, picture from uh, the Royal Visit or anything like that. But um, if this was anything like when the Queen visited, or even more so, <laughs> it would have been amazing. I mean, you can see, obviously, a lot of the schoolgirls there. Um, I see a, a couple of boys there as well, it looks like, but uh, mostly girls. Um, but they've got like England flags and 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 you know the Union flag as well. But that if that was anything like when you were playing, uh, you know, it there was a there was a bigger runoff, wasn't there, or a bigger gap between the pitch and yeah. the, where the crowd started. Did it actually seem that far away? Quite honestly, um, Taft, the whole thing was so out of our normal experience of playing. I don't think we distinguish that. Remember, we normally played in front of a few hundred. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that there was this huge crowd and this wall of noise, I don't think we noticed the gap in between. It was it, The whole thing was surreal. That's right. I think what you notice, I mean, the, the thing I expressed before, when you left the tunnel, you came across the pitch in front of the rock, it, it was just the vastness. So it did feel um, a, a big arena uh, yeah. Uh, and therefore, you, you, but you didn't quite feel that separate. So as a winger, I felt still close to the crowd, even though they were a distance away. Yeah. Um, uh, of course, nowadays you are much closer, you know, in, in the stadiums that we have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, a lot of, obviously a lot of school girls and a lot of schools attended the games as, as, as obviously Kate did uh, one time, or a couple of times maybe. Um, now, um, Maggie, you were a teacher um, at the time as well. Is that right, or have I got that wrong? Do, do, was did any of your schools attend, or schools that you actually went to or taught at attend? Yes, I mean, uh, well, Barnsley Girls High School um, is where I was taught, and um, uh, of course, that um, when I left, I would imagine they still organised trips. Um, certainly. Um, uh, Queen Mary School, where I taught, and Merchant Taylors, that we did have um, parties that went. Uh, um, and Mary Bertus, a past player, she was at Queen Mary School. So yeah. you, you certainly had um, your 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 the schools that I taught at. Um, I recall that they did organise parties to go down to support the teacher. <laughs> We, we used to have that when I was working at school as well. Anita, do you, would, do you know any of your schools that may, may have attended? I don't know. No, I don't. I do remember taking um, school children to Wembley before I was selected. Right. Um, and in fact, uh, there were boys that were in that group as well. They just fancied a trip to Wembley. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Chris, what about yourself? I mean, you, um, um, as a, did you, obviously, your mum being involved in, you know, the organisational part of the uh, the games and things like that, you 
quite possibly did you go with your mum or did you go with like school visits and things like that or? well in the in the early days um because mum was kind of on duty um my father would uh drive us up and we would have um lunch in the car park we had one of those special tickets but we had to get there really early because there were so many coaches and things coming in um my father was never very good at waiting around but you know we would have hot soup and sandwiches which my mother had made before she disappeared off at the crack of dawn um <laughs> but then when i was at boarding school i did go a couple of times from boarding school um and i would meet up with my mother and she would give me some food as as happened with boarding schools um but in a way, it was nicer when it was sort of a family outing because, um, you know, it wasn't very often that we did things as a family together. And that was a really good opportunity for us to sort of all experience the, the, the same thing. Um, when I was doing the Wembley book, I was desperate to find a photo of that view from the balcony of people and buses. And I looked everywhere for it in the museum and, and eventually, because I thought, I'm sure I've seen it somewhere. And then I looked in my own collection and I realised I'd taken one, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's which, which is in the book. <laughs> yeah, that's in the book, isn't it? And that's amazing. I mean, you, I mean, I, again, I can't imagine it. I, I can't imagine, you know, the, the tens of hundreds of, of uh, coaches that maybe arrived later on, you know, I mean, earlier years, it was it was by uh, uh, mail and things like that. But then uh, as time went on, it changed from going in from rail to coaches and then obviously driving yourself or whatever. But yeah, uh, there's like hundreds of coaches on there. There's thousands of people just around the coaches, just, you know, trying to descend on, uh, on Wembley. Just amazing view, amazing view. I mean, I, I mean, I was involved in obviously uh, stuff at the Lee Valley and just watching people come in over the bridge to to uh, the Lee Valley Stadium and the crowds that, that, it, that it gathered, you know, just trying to get in, um, but nothing compared to that image that you that you have in the book. Nothing compared to that. It just looks a thousand times more in the image that you've put in the book. It's just I don't know. I just can't. Uh, I really can't imagine. Can't fathom the the the, the amount of people that were actually there. Um, and coming on to like people being there, the very first um, game that was played, I think they had about thirty thousand, and that were over the years expanded to 68,000 to its maximum. Um, and 68,000, I mean, even 30,000 or whatever, 68,000 is phenomenal, phenomenal. When you, I think, when you played the, the Queen's game, I think, uh, was 52,000 52, at the time. It, it's I, think, I think the Queen's was 62, I think, was oh. it? And I think, Anita, was your 68? Your, yeah. your Last Wembley, you said, was 66? Yeah, 76. that was, that was 76, uh, and we had 68,000 there. I mean, if you oh. think about it, I was just talking uh, to my husband about it. There, there, there are hardly, you know, can you think of any other um, women's sport event that would have that number of people? I mean, oh. Remember the stadium, that was the old Wembley Stadium before it was there were seats put in. Uh, so 68,000 is a pretty enormous number. Yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, I was there um, in 2012 when the women's soccer team played Brazil. And I know I thought at the time this is the biggest gathering for a women's sport match since we used to play here. Uh, but even then it wouldn't have been that that number because it's now all-seater. Yeah. Mm. 
So I think it probably, I don't know, but I think it probably holds the record as the women's sport event that had the most, has had the most spectators ever. Oh, is it, is it still, oh, has it got a record? I didn't know about that, but. Well, I don't know. I can, but can you, I can't think of another one. I haven't tried to verify it. It'd be a good quiz question, wouldn't it? Let's go, let's go with that. Let's go with that. It's fine. Yeah. The hockey game at Wembley was the biggest uh, women's sporting event spectated ever. That's right. Let's go with that. Yeah. Headline. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so even well, saying about saying about the um, you know the, the the amount of people, spectators that were there, it was actually a, a, a little bit of a, a so like a, a note in one of the magazines that or the programs that were actually sent out, which was a discipline note um, mm-hmm. saying that, uh, that um, the crowd should make that much noise. And they should move around in their seats too much because it's distracting to to, to the players. Now, <laughs> and that they couldn't hear the whistle. I think it was. Yeah, that as well. Yeah, and and to me, that's that's like crazy. We won't get that now. Uh, we it'd be more of the fact that we would have to encourage the crowd to actually, you know, cheer when they should be cheering or cheer all the time. Um, and I remember, like you know, the hockey makers at uh, Lee Valley trying to cheer the crowd on for for some of the international games that are um, are playing there. Um, you know, we'd get them, you know, hyped up uh, for X amount of minutes, ten minutes or fifteen minutes, whatever. And as soon as the game started, it'd be all quiet, and the only noise would uh, would happen when maybe you got near the goal. Is that right? Uh, you know, into the D. Yeah. Uh, um, crescendo, it lifted. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it wasn't constant. It was, you know, I don't know whether. <laughs> Uh, Simon, we were talking about this before, you know, whether that is a, a catalyst of why we're actually so quiet nowadays, I don't know. Yeah, we, we wondered, is this maybe why we are so quiet, say, compared to the Belgians or the Dutch? I was at the Olympic qualifier in 2012 for, for the Belgians, and you could not think of that banging of the drum and the noise and the cheering, um, whereas when you go to an England match, unfortunately, it's all very civil. Um, until we until we score, and there's a bit of noise, and then we we go back to being quiet again. So yeah, we just wondered: is this perhaps where it originates from? I think my my recollection of it is that the no, they started cheering as soon as England got the ball. Yeah. And the nearer we got to the goal to score against the, the Olympians, they got louder and louder and louder. Then if we got tackled, or it was a 16-yard hit out, or you know possession was with the other team, they would go quiet again. They just went up and down like that yeah. all the time. Absolutely. And of course, because England had the ball most of the time, they were noisy most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I like well, it, yes. But your record uh, of the, uh, you know, at the Wembley Games is uh, pretty impressive, isn't it? Because, um, you know, I think you've, you've won more than 50% of the games um, whilst you were there, only lost a few. Uh, drew a, a couple as well. Um, so the, the the statistics between fifty one and, and ninety one at, at Wembley is it's pretty incredible. You, you didn't lose that many games and you didn't draw that many games. You won most of them, and against people you know teams like the Netherlands, who are one of the best teams in the world now. Um, so is England, of course. Um, and you know um, you've got Germany there, who were quite good at that time as well. So you kind of played against some really you know, good teams and, and, and beat them, you know, even the, like Australia and things like that. What was it like, we, you know, playing against teams like, you know, Germany, Netherlands and uh, whatever at Wembley? 
Well, I think you've got to remember that in those those times, England were ranked much higher in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, in, I mean, actually, we didn't have a terribly good record um, when I was playing at Wembley. But ha- having said that, um, you know, we, we were pretty much expected to win. Right. Um, and I'm just sorry, we didn't always we didn't always win. But it, but it was a different order then. Yeah. You know, since then, there are a lot of other countries that have really come up and uh, developed that you know, hockey's developed. Uh, massively in a whole lot of countries where it wasn't really played much at all when Maggie and I were playing. Right. And so I think so also the, the hockey scene is different now. But I think you also have to remember some of the teams that played at Wembley were actually touring teams, yeah, um, yeah. like Australia and New Zealand and America, and therefore they um, bonded a lot more and knew their team probably better than the yeah. England team did because they played a lot of matches. You know, they were over in Europe and they had a whole string of engagements. Yeah. Yeah, and there were one-off occasions, weren't they, um, in terms of that. Um, yeah. you mentioned I was, I was Sorry. talking to uh, uh, Jill Boone a little while ago, and she said, uh, particularly when she was talking about the 2012 and the 2016 squads, that the England and Great Britain team was a team that terrified some players and scared teams. Uh, and they would, once they overcame that initial fright, really step their game up. And it was a really bit, like, you know, like in football, we talk about, you know, you get yourself psyched up for a big Premier League clash and and maybe a, a team can beat a top four Premier League team but struggles against the mid-table and below. Do you feel like perhaps these nations, when they came over to, to play at Wembley, they were really stepping it up and feeling that this was a chance to really prove themselves and punch above their weight against sort of the giants of the game? Yeah, I, I, think, that was, I think that was true uh, to some extent. And also remember that, we we had you know once you played at Wembley once you then took that experience through to the next time and the next time but for most of them it was their first time and it was easy to be overawed by the whole experience so I think it was I think it was pretty tough for those teams coming to Wembley when they'd never played there before most of them yeah. wow I mean, Australia was mentioned um, uh, in one of the conversations, I think it was you, Maggie, that said that. Um, and I don't know, uh, Chris, you basically, in the book, we mentioned Australia as well, uh, or you mentioned Australia as well, and the fact that they came over uh, and maybe they were a touring side. But there's a bit of a caveat in, in, in that as well. Yeah, so they didn't, didn't get to play at Wembley. <laughs> this was in 1970. They did a, a pitch inspection on the Thursday, and um, it was obvious that the pitch wasn't going to be playable. So somehow they switched the whole venue to White City at 48 hours notice. Um, And the poor Australian team, um, they hadn't realised how bad the traffic was going to be. And they ended up having to stop the police and say, look, we are the team. There's not going to be a match unless we we get there. And so the police had to escort them and they got a couple of... uh, you know, mounted police on horses to try and get them through the traffic. Otherwise, it wasn't going to be a match at all. And it was one of the Australian players who uh, took a photo out of the window, which is in the book, um, because, you know, that was a fairly unique moment. So we were lucky to be able to include that. Yeah, well, yeah, that's crazy to, uh, you know, think that you they were able to change the venue from you know, Wembley to White City in, in such a short time. Um, and the capacity of the of, of the stadium was a little bit less, wasn't it, as well? Uh, so, but, you know, some people were obviously disappointed that they didn't, didn't get to see that game. But I reckon, 
you know, Australia were quite disappointed not to yes. play going all that way from, you know, Australia. Um, but yeah, oh, well. Um, but getting a police escort must have been amazing for them. Like you, like you say, Chris, you know, it, it, it's a it's a photograph that you got in the, in in the book. That's actually one of the players who took it, really, because it was such a unique and I'd say I won't say special moment, but unique moment kind of thing. Um, so we 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 talked that we we kind of like um, you know touched on the on the kind of like uh, the fans and and how much people how many people attended now. I believe that before, I don't know whether uh, at your time they did this uh, or anything like that, but uh, there was times where uh, fan mail got delivered to um, the changing rooms before the game. Did that ever happen in your uh, your time when you played? And did you ever respond to any, it's easier now, that, you know, with Kate on uh, Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff and engaging with her fans and, you know, obviously she's a legend. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, um, it's easier for, for athletes yeah. or, you know, role models to actually interact with their the fan base. Do you ever interact with people that may have sent you fan mails and, and maybe wrote back to them or, or meet them or did autographs or, or even do a, a, a victory lap? Um, there is an image of you, I think, uh, Maggie, in the book with a, with a, with a flag. A cap on and a flag, yeah. yeah that's yeah. right. I so mean, in, my, we, my wonderment is that where did you get that flag from and did you ever return it to the spectator? <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> I've still got the flag on the cap. Um, <laughs> we, in the changing room, we, we, well, we certainly didn't have mobiles, um, yeah. but we got telegrams so that tells you telegrams these days you don't get a telegram so um we we got cards we had flowers delivered so everything came through the little door and into the changing rooms and uh, often you'd find after we'd had lunch and we went back through the stadium down to the changing rooms to get change we they would be there all there so different and then the, there would be some personal messages I'm sure and some team messages so we all just uh, as Anita uh, mentioned earlier we we very much um read them out to everyone you know in in different ways so it it was all very special um in terms of whether we responded i think it would be very different quite often a lot of the the, the things we got were from friends and family um occasional ones from from people afar um, out on the pitch, yes, around the lap of honor, I think certainly on the the Royal Wembley, the excitement was still there post game. So anything I could grab or someone threw at me, then it got on my head or the scarf around the neck, the flag in the air. So it was just taking it all in at the very end and celebrating with the the crowds you know, because they'd been tremendous. Was there any autographs? Did you sign any autographs or anything like that? Or? I think occasionally, but it, it wasn't, we were just excited. So I suppose it was very different. Now, these days you stand and you, you know, do all the autographs. But I think we were, the more autographs you did, the less time you had to go around the, the, uh, the, the, the whole stadium. So I think we were just trying to get around to see everybody because it was pretty vast. Um, so, yes, occasionally you'd stop, but not in, in the same way. Uh, the one thing you had to ensure that you didn't leave your stick lying around, or that certainly would be a souvenir for for one of the schoolgirls. I do recall <laughs> in my time that um, a stick did disappear, oh. and you just had to make sure 
that your stick didn't disappear, in particular if you only had one. Yeah. <laughs> in my early days, I probably had one stick that I always played with. <laughs> What about yourself, Anita? Did you, uh, you know, do uh, Act of Honours and, and steal any flags like uh, Maggie did and never return them? <laughs> no, no, well, we were much too well behaved for that. <laughs> but actually, I, I, was, I saw that question, I thought, I don't think we did do a Act of Honour, but Maggie might remember in those, those games that we played in together. I, I think that came in much later. Yeah. I certainly don't remember getting any fan mail or, or signing autographs. No, um, it was latterly. Maggie said there it was there were there was a tradition of um, flowers and telegrams, uh, maybe from your club um, that you played for, etc. Um, so that so so you, there were supporters, but they were people known to you rather than the kind of fan mail. And of course, there were no mobile phones, no social media, or no. any of that. So we, so we weren't celebrities like uh, Kate is. <laughs> I think I think originally that Wembley Stadium didn't want us to do the lap of honour, but we just got carried away in certain circumstances. So I think it, eventually it led to it being a little bit of a lap of honour, yeah. and that could have been set off in the Royal Wembley when we got a bit excited. Uh, again, you know, Lee Valley um, and Kate again when you've played that, it, it's been and obviously Maggie, you're around as well as as a manager. Um, it's been it's been so like a, a times where you know you've gone for a lap of honor and and gone for autograph uh, you know signing autographs and things like that and and it's taken it a lot longer than um we would have anticipated it being and only because a lot of people were wanted your autographs and wanted you to go around uh, the pitch and talk us through that i mean the the, the comparison there yeah it's um i think we felt a really big sense of responsibility to um you know, to thank the crowd, frankly, for, for coming to watch us and for, and for supporting us. So I think we we wanted to take that time and as well as, you know, balancing up with making sure you got your ice bath and you did all that stuff as well. So it was definitely a balance, but we we all felt that sense of responsibility and duty to want to want to do it. And um, although it's, I remember the, I think the first time I signed an autograph, I think it was 1999, Maggie, when you were coaching and the other thing, I was like, this is weird. Why am I signing this program? It's so odd. It's so odd. I was like not 18 or 19. It's just the strangest thing. But then, you know, it just became a thing that you do and you had to learn to take selfies and things like that. I didn't know how to take selfie. Um, but you just, it's just, it was just so nice to, to just say thank you to the crowd and particularly the youngsters that would stay a little bit longer to um to just see if they could meet you and, and say hello and you could sign their flag or you know that I think that's just such a nice thing you can do to give back and I was one of those you know I was one of those at Wembley now I was one of those young ones and I remember the team going to do a lap of honor and seeing them coming around the was it like a shale was it like a shale yeah, yeah. And I, so I just remember, you know, I remember that so clearly. And so now it was then so important to give that back to, to the youngsters when I was playing. Yeah. I remember the first time I ever met you, Kate, I don't know whether you remember this. And I don't know whether we've actually talked about this. It was uh, at one of the greatest Manchester Youth Games. You attended um, there uh, as a, a guest of honour for, for the hockey. You were actually at there. Yeah, do you remember? I don't know whether you remember. <laughs> I remember playing at the Grace Mice Youth yeah. Games. I don't remember going as a guest of honour. But yeah, I mean... Uh, well, basically, you were, you were, you, I think you were part of the uh, um, England or GB uh, squad at the time. 
and I think you handed out some, um, you know, medals and things like that. I think you handed out medals to my my girls team actually. They won. Uh, I, I want to say silver, but it might have been gold. I don't know. We won so many times. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that was my first ever, you know, meeting you and and, and things like that. Um, I knew who you were at the time as well, so I was uh, I was like, going, oh my god, an England star, and look at you now, brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, but that's why that's why hockey's so special, though, isn't it? Because you think, you know, particularly um, Maggie and Nita's generation, particularly, and the ladies that I grew up playing with, lots of them were PE teachers, and lots of them had lots of connections through clubs as well with lots of young people. And and it's it's one of it. You know, we call it the hockey family, but it is that for a reason because there is there's always been that history of. Whether you whether you think you're a role model or you're inspiring others or not, there is that natural way just because of that contact with young people in through sport or hockey specifically. And I think that's there's there's always been that sense of giving back. That's why I, you know it's been in, it's been instilled in me. That's what you do. You 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 then go. And I was playing at the Grade Manchester game. So then when you get the opportunity to go back, you, you do it because that's what yeah. Tina Cullen did before me and Maggie Seale did before Tina. And it's you just pass it down in that way. Absolutely. Cool. Um, so we've come up to the lap of honours and things like that. So that's the end of the game for, for at the Wembley um, things. But that wasn't actually the end of, of what you had to do um, on, on occasions. So there were like match teas. Sometimes you had match teas before the game and sometimes you had them after the game. Um, so in the 50s, it was a little bit more, more of a formal thing where they had it uh, the night before, I believe. Um, and then... Um, you know, with all the dignitaries and, and things like that. Um, and then I think it might have changed to having matches after or something like that. So talk us through how, how formal it was and, and what your experience was like. Um, match tees, for what I remember, match tees were after the game. Okay. And then um, what was interesting is the longer you took going on a lap of honour and enjoying the atmosphere in the stadium and then walking back down the tunnel to go into the changing rooms to get changed to go to tea. Um, in, in our day, we certainly didn't have to, to um, put up with having ice passed. So maybe we had the quick shower. I mean, in, the, in Wembley, you had individual showers, individual baths, and then the big communal one. And what I do remember is we all sort of just jumped in the communal one and had a play, and then out we got, and then got changed, uh, put our blazers on, and into mm -hmm. tea. And by the time you got to tea, you, you know, if you'd been a little bit late, um, there was no tea left anyway. So it was oh. just, it didn't matter too much. And of course, when you actually got selected for England, you got um, complimentary tea tickets. So of course you had to decide who out of your family and friends would get these tickets. So they were very special as well, very prized tickets. Um, so into tea and enjoy to chat to to, to everyone, you know, we mixed, mingled a little bit with our own uh, our own families. Um, and occasionally um, we would obviously speak with the opposition. It just depended the situation. Yes, I do remember getting a, a tea ticket was sort of quite a big deal and all the county associations could, could buy tickets. So, I mean, it was the banqueting hall and there were just loads and loads of people there. My father always described it as the best bun fight in Europe because you were lucky <laughs> if you could actually get to the table and get any tea. 
because there were just so many people that descended on it. Yeah. Um, and my father's best uh, moment was when um, he approached the tea table and he saw another man there and he said, I think I should tell you that these sandwiches taste like cardboard. And then <laughs> he introduced himself and he was only talking to the managing director of Wembley, Jeffrey Nugas. <laughs> Who said to him, don't worry, I'm going to sort out the catering. You'd only just take the note for his managing director. <laughs> Brilliant. But yeah, so, the, you know, it, it was hard work even for us that had just watched the match and then went down to the banqueting hall. You know, you were lucky if you got one sandwich, let alone, you know, a cup of tea or cake. <laughs> what about yourself, Anita? Any, any... Um, I think Maggie's reflected it very well. There were loads of people in the tea because it was um, a way of saying thank you to all the volunteers in hockey in the different clubs and counties. Uh, and so that it was absolutely jam-packed with uh, the great and the good of, of hockey. Yeah. Uh, so you felt as a player coming in, as Maggie says, you were lucky if you got any tea, but that didn't really matter because it was just such a re relief really to have got through it all and be able to see your family and friends again. Yeah. That's right. And because we wore the distinctive blazer, the England blazer, then and the opposition often had a blazer on as well, then as we mingled in there, it clearly showed who the players were. So I think people enjoyed that so that you were identified rather than just mingled, um, you know, with, with, with your ordinary clothes. So I think the blazer sometimes has that significance as well. Mm. It's very much different now. Is it? Sorry, uh, Chris, you were going to say? I was just going to say, and then there was a formal dinner in the evening oh. afterwards, particularly for those teams that, um, you know, weren't the home countries. But even the home countries, um, they they did have a dinner and everybody thanked each other and, um, you know, told some funny stories. Um, I've been cataloguing all my mother's speeches because she was uh, president of the All England from uh, 1976 to 1986. And she actually wrote all her speeches down. So I was going through and uh, reading reading what she said. Um, but I think it was one of those evenings where everybody was just so relieved that the match had happened, um, that they could actually relax and enjoy the evening. So I'd like to ask Anita and Maggie whether they actually enjoyed the dinners. Well, I'll say, yeah, I did once I got the speech over. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But um, I remember when I was captain, um, there were several of us in the team who were married and we lobbied the England executive to allow husbands to go to this dinner because it had been an all women's female affair. Uh, and I'm pretty sure during my time they did actually agree to allow men, male partners, husbands, I don't know what they were called then, uh, to, to attend. And that was quite a breakthrough because previously um, that hadn't been uh, allowed. I think the thing about the speeches as well, if they were at the end of the dinner, you certainly didn't enjoy your dinner. So um, there was a lot to be said for occasionally having the speeches first and then being able to just relax. So if anything about being nervous, probably that is the occasion when you're nervous more so than playing out on the pitch. Yeah. Very much different to uh, when you played then, Kate. I know, and I think it's something that um, I really wish we did have a little bit more of because, yes, you know, I think there's more interaction with players partly because of social media, partly because of the various kind of commissions that athletes are on or um, especially playing abroad and things like that. Players travel more and play with each other more in that sense, but you don't tend to have that same 
social or formal aspect anymore. Um, I'm trying to think that perhaps in the beginning of my career, I remember going to Australia with, again, Maggie and Maggie was coach. And I think we went out with Australians a couple of times when we were out over there to have dinner and we kind of sat with them and talked to them. And, and it's really nice to have that shared experience with people that are playing hockey in another country and, and just and talk about it. And I, I think we, yeah, I think there's something there that I think would be nice to be, bring back. I mean, I really want to bring back the blazer. I loved those blazers. I still yeah. love that. Yeah. I think it's just the most iconic, smart, sharp yeah. thing. And as Maggie said, when you wear it, you feel special and you're, you know, people can spot you and um and want and come and talk to you. I think it's a lot, it's a lovely thing. Okay. With your playing days, um, there were social occasions after major tournaments, but I, I remember Tibor Weissenborn turning up and playing kit at a nightclub. Um, <laughs> but there was no, there was no kind of social occasion. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's kind of what I said. So there was no formal whatsoever. No, not that I can, not that I can recall. It's definitely been more about. I mean, particularly at the end of the, of the tournament. I mean, it's because I suppose they're now less one-off games you know where you can make a big event of it there are you know even even if we're playing a team that comes over or we travel you, you play five test games and um still I can't think even then there's anything kind of formal that ever gets done and I think it's I do think we should bring that back you know after tournaments it's absolute carnage um after at Lee Valley after the European Championships in 2015 we ended up in in a casino with our playing kits still on. So it's still it's still going strong. But a blazer would have looked much better, I think. <laughs> and I think at the Wembley dinners that you had the tables where you did have not, you didn't sit with your team, you mixed mm-hmm. with the opposition. And again, that was important, not just from a player point of view, but from the officials and the people who were behind, you know, the, the sort of organisation of the game. So you, you did have that, because um, that's what it was all about, really. It wasn't just about yourselves. It was about, you, you know, um, everything about what it was to host the game, really. Yeah. Um, so they were special um, in every way. So I suppose the difference now is that there's so many games. Uh, yeah. When we played, we played three home countries, one opposition game, um, and therefore to, to do four dinners, say, you know, teas and dinners in, in that way was probably easier to organise in that respect. Yeah. And, and I think often- um, Maggie and Kate have hit on something there about values. Because uh, in the days when, certainly when we were playing and immediately before, the All England Women's Hockey Association didn't really support um, it being too competitive. The emphasis was, was not to be on winning as such. It was, it was on the camaraderie and the social interaction and the taking part with, with people from different parts of the world. Mm. And, that, and, and, and so that was the emphasis. And they actually absolutely rejected um, making it too competitive and declaring winners of tournaments in, in some cases. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, quite a good point out there. Um, I, I, again, you know, you're, you're talking about it and it's taking me back to, you know, me actually being there when I wasn't even there anyway. <laughs> um, um, we, we've, we've basically, obviously, Coming to a lot, like uh, a little bit of the end of this, um, you know, discussion and 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 listen, hearing about your stories and things like that, um, which are brilliant. And like I said, your conversations and your, you know, experiences, it, it, I can feel myself being at Wembley, watching you play, 
looking at the crowd, especially when looking at these images and, uh, and whatever. Um, how do you think we can possibly replicate it or do something similar? I know you touched on it and say we probably won't be able to get something similar to going to Wembley, but could we do something similar? Could we, and, 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 and how do you think we should do that? How can we accomplish that maybe? Well, I mean, at the moment you've got the state, uh, say Queen Elizabeth, and then you've got Twickenham where they are placing a pitch down and trying to create, yeah. uh, you know, to, to, to help a larger crowd be there. So, yeah. yes, of course, you could say take a pitch and put it and place it in Wembley, but it wouldn't be the same. So I think what hockey are doing at the moment is it, it is a really good thing. I think they, they fill a capacity stadium. They get... Um, more seating if it's required they move the pitch to say Twickenham uh, so so that's an innovation in itself and to continue that and see how that grows I think is important I think it's important though if we take something to Twickenham that we fill the stadium you know it's actually uh, you know at full capacity yeah so so, so so we obviously will never quite I don't think again get to the 68,000 crowds that we had at Wembley Mm. Um, that was a very special thing, and I, I think it, it, it was uh, very much a different era, really, uh, mm. because I think um, supporting now is, is done in a very different way, whereas in, in Wembley was more a mass, um, say, you get 30 school children come in for a school or so many clubs, so you, you had a very different thing there. Yeah. Um, so I think what we're doing at the moment is certainly encouraging um, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the stoop was brilliant. You know, um, the the pro league game, obviously not last year, but the year before, uh, when England put laid down a, a temporary pitch and uh, or whatever, um, and pretty much filling that. Um, and I think you, you're probably right. We we need to do a bit of a stepping stone type thing. Maybe maybe do that again, and, and maybe do it a couple of times, and then possibly if if all that to capacity and and um, sell out maybe looking for a bigger venue and then maybe a bigger venue and maybe getting to 68,000 I don't know um, or, or maybe um, this is the 70th year um, what we're saying is um, that, that this is a celebration isn't it yeah. now if COVID hadn't been on we could have said to Wembley right can we host uh, an international hockey match at Wembley uh, and, and yes still host it on grass so it's it's actually just celebrating the anniversary of, of yeah. Wembley. Um, so, you know, and, and then we watch our modern players play today on grass. Uh, we, you know what I mean? So, so we, we, nice. we create a spectacle in that respect. I, I personally think they will not be as skillful as you ever were. <laughs> no. You know, 100%. 3D yeah. skills and things like that were we give them our clothing you know we give them a pinafore to wear and so we create a, a spectacle <laughs> Kate can you imagine that the current players playing in the long sleeve uh, you know rugby type cheetah shirts and the long skirts can you imagine that I mean, I wasn't that far off it. I was like, I bought, I started school in, in a rugby shirt and thick yeah. skirt. Um, 
I know one of the England uh, players and GB players went to train some of the actresses for this one of the St Trinian's films oh, yeah. on grass, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, but obviously she's used to playing on AstroTurf, so she was like demonstrating skills and she tried to just literally receive the ball, but she was like letting it come across the body and it just kept hopping over a stick and she's like, oh, I'm an international, I'm supposed to be showing these actresses what to do. But it's a totally different game, different skills yeah. and it would, it would be amusing to see the uh, the modern day players playing on grass for sure because I don't think they'd be able to you I think they'd go down so well maybe for comic relief we could have done something <laughs> yes <laughs> so. we, make, we need to make this happen maybe next year or something like comic that. relief is a good shout yeah sport relief you know, why not even if it's just for a, a moment in time yeah, yeah, yeah. they would recreate that yeah, it's a good idea. There's no reason why we can't go back to Wembley. So it's whether we've the finance, yeah. we've got the inclination. Yeah. I think that's the thing about trying to recreate it. It, it was also the going to Wembley. Yeah. And and particularly with, with the old stadium, I think it had so much history and... Yeah. You know, just the towers. It was just it's it was so iconic. And yes, we have Wembley, and it is special, but it's not the same. Not the same. And maybe for this net, for, you know, for the younger generation, perhaps it is the same for them. Perhaps they feel about the new Wembley as we do feel about the old Wembley. So it's I do think the venue is is part of it. So I think the stoop was amazing, and I agree. If we go somewhere, you have to fill it out. Otherwise, it just doesn't work um, yeah. for anybody. But. Um, yeah, I think the venue is really important. So if we can find, you know, I think stepping stone in it is a good idea and finding the right venues that people want to just have a day out and go there because it's special and get to see wonderful international hockey being played. Um, yeah, that would be awesome. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, it would be amazing to do it at Wembley. Maybe, maybe we can make this happen. Well, why not? Or, why not? or, 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 or something similar, you know, getting the, getting the current... In the current, uh, you know, England GB team to actually do that and, and maybe playing a home nations. You know, our home nations side, you know, that we keep going on about, we could probably start that on grass, the tribute to the Wembley years. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a long running theme in the last, I guess, four or five episodes. Uh, and, a, and a few internationals have messaged us privately saying, yeah, they really want to do it. Yeah. Um, home nations, definitely. Extra calendar to make it practical. Yeah. <laughs> There's well, so many games, that's the only problem. But yeah, yeah. They're, they're always good. Home Nations games are always good. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, in those days, it was it, the, the calendar for international hockey wasn't as as tight and um, uh, jam packed it is now. And and you know, when do, the thing is, when do you do it? And <clears throat> remember, we have the uh, investing invitational, you know, many years ago, um, where we did invite you know, uh, other teams, I, I think, I, and my thought was something similar to that, but just the home nations, um, and maybe invite a, a one foreign team or two foreign teams to come and play at some sort of tournament or whatever, a couple of days. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Maggie, I think, yeah, if we're going to... Uh, we just gonna, want a day out to enjoy, don't we? So yeah. that's what we've got to think about. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe our first ever, uh, you know, tournament that we ever uh, get started uh, would be that one on grass and and make it a tribute to the Wembley years for sure I mean, maybe on the 75th anniversary get the Rio squad to play against the current yeah, uh, yeah absolutely wow. five years time I will be wanting to play in a pinafore in That's, that many years well Kate you'd love that blazer anyway so you know I'm sold <laughs> let's talk about it <laughs> well on that note ladies um, 
I'd like to thank you. I mean, we've gone through a lot uh, today, and uh, it's amazing that when, you know, uh, the stories that you've actually come out with and, and things like that, and it's amazing. it's been amazing having you on the podcast, this special. I, I really don't know what to say. You, you're all legends, every single one of you, and I just want to thank you very much for, for joining us for this very special edition of Talk Poppy Radio. Um, Chris, um, they can actually buy the book, can't they? Um, from oh, I've got it here. Oh, yeah. you've got it there. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. The magic of Wembley. It's available on uh, the Hockey Museum's website, which is thehockeymuseum.org, and there are details on there. If you enjoyed this, uh, listen to this podcast, everyone, um, please go and visit hockeymuseum.net and order your book. It's not expensive. Uh, you know, I think, what is it, £10, £12 or something um, like that? Yes, um, and it's not a big book. It, it was just the idea of um, capturing memories and giving everybody a chance to say, oh, do you remember that? Or people going, oh, wow, I can't believe there were that yeah, many yeah. people there. I, 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 When I received the book and I read it and I was like thinking, wow, amazing you know, reading some of the uh, player, um, you know, uh, information there. And there's some uh, oral uh, history stuff on there as well, which uh, um, I think, yeah, Maggie, you've done, and Anita, you, yeah, you did that as well, didn't you? Um, so, you know, um, talking about the, the Wembley years and also your, your, your own careers and within your own right, obviously. Um, so, guys, if you basically enjoyed this podcast, please go out. Check the uh, check out the hockey museum and also go and buy the book. It's brilliant. Honestly, you you you'd be taken back. I'm telling you. I've got my little thing here. Look at that. Oh, your padding's oh, brilliant. My day. So, so people on the podcast, Maggie is holding up. It's the Wembley. It's the Paddington Wembley. That was '82. Oh wow. Yes, because you used to get free gifts, didn't yes. you? I was quite That's surprised fantastic. to find out about that. Yeah. That is great. I want one, Maggie. <laughs> but I'm hoping that the book captures the moment in, in time because it just seemed normal for me to go to Wembley every March. And, you know, it's only now you look back and think, oh, blimey, that's history. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Amazing. I mean, I, uh, you know, we, we have the indoors every year, obviously no, not this year, and we had them last year. And that's just, I mean, I, I volunteer in, um, for the indoors, um, and I also volunteer to to do uh, internationals at Lee Valley. And it's, it's, for me, doing that every year is is a, a, an event that I want to do all the time. I want to go to to these international events and, and um, basically watch games and be involved in, in, in the organisation, things like that. Um, but I'm pretty sure that people that go to Lee Valley that have been to, um, you know, Wembley, it was one of those things where it was a day out for the family or, or, or a school um, sort of like a party. And, you know, I don't know whether they, they'd go out, you know, into into London or or whatever after. So it must have been a whole whole day event for them, for sure. Um, again, thank you for, for joining us uh, for this special. It's been a pleasure and an honour to have you basically join us and, and tell us about your uh, experience at the Wembley. And Kate, thank you for joining us and giving your comparative insight um, on on how you how it was like for you uh, compared to you know uh, the other legends that we have. The here. oldies, 
Legends, legends, the actual legends. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and can I say thank you to thank you to you and to Simon for oh, you, for yeah, getting yeah. this together. It's really nice to to hear uh, this our, some of our history being celebrated in this way. Oh, so, it's been, so well done, and thank you very much. Yeah, thank Honestly. you, thank you. Wembley, here we come. Yeah, yeah, again. <laughs> 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 oh, it was it was a pleasure when I was asked by the uh, the hockey museum to do this. Um, we were like, yeah, amazing, let's do it. And when I got the book, I was even more excited. <laughs> it was brilliant. Um, thanks again. Okay, nice. Okay, nice okay. to do it. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.